Now we are continuing in our study of Ephesians, although it will be somewhat of a catechetical catechism slash scripture study. Now we have not done that in quite a while, and in fact in the Reformed Church, it's often the practice of Reformed churches in the evening service to preach what's called a catechetical sermon. That is, the pastors would, would do that. And what that is is preaching through the Heidelberg Catechism. And we have not done that as a practice ourselves. Of course, we don't have two services, but nevertheless, we're having uh, one now. So uh, turn to Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, first of all. That's our text, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. Hear God's word. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive, but speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body the edifying of itself in love. Does that not remind us of this, the human body, in many ways? How God has fearfully and wonderfully made us and brought us, brought us into this life and sustains us bodily up to a point when we, of course, depart from this life, we will be given a new body which would be even more glorious than the former. Let me also read from the Heidelberg Catechism. And I don't believe it's in here, so I have to turn to what is my scripture. My version does not have that. And uh, so... looking at Heidelberg Catechism question 32. But why art thou called a Christian? And the answer, because by faith I am a member of Christ and thus a partaker of his anointing in order that I may also confess his name, may present myself a living sacrifice of thankfulness to God and that with a free conscience I may, I may fight against sin and the devil in this life, and hereafter in eternity reign with him over all creatures. We'll hear more about that. And so, let us pray. Oh Father, thank you for your word. Thank you also for faithful, faithful men who have taught others to be faithful men and women of God, and especially those who would continue 
to shepherd the flock. Oh Lord, how we thank you for this office of believer that we will be looking at and how this was what is in the heart of the Lord when he speaks of his bride that he is desiring to be holy and without blame, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. This is the one for whom you came into the world and sacrificed yourself in order to make your very bride. So bless our understanding from your scriptures and by the work of your spirit. Make us alive, more alive than we were before we heard this. In Christ's name, amen. Now we've been talking about the church of the triune God, Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Jesus said, I will build my church as being part of that trinity. He builds it with redeemed sinners. Isaiah speaks about how we are built from the rock from which we were hewn in the ground like Abraham and from the hole of the pit whence we are digged. And he uses redeemed sinners to build redeemed sinners as in our passage. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints. That is a word that means bring to completeness, bring to maturity. That's the goal. For the work of the ministry, to do the work of becoming servants, humble servants of God and of his bride. For the edifying of the body of Christ. That means ultimately so that the body will be built up. The bride of Christ has been called, amongst other things, and I'm speaking positively, an organized organism. And why? Well, first, because it is a spiritually alive and living, breathing entity with a soul. In Ephesians 2.22, in whom you are also built together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. You see, we are the habitation of the Spirit, the Spirit of God. And consider from Ephesians chapter 2, if you would turn there, please. Verses 20 and 21. And I'll read uh, the phrase right before that. Uh, and of the household of God and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord. And so there are words there that attest to there being structure, foundation, chief cornerstone. Here's a picture of 
a foundation. And this illustrates what we've just read and how we're all like those building blocks. And the foundation, the first tier of blocks were the apostles and prophets. And Jesus Christ is himself the chief cornerstone. He is that part that holds them together and binds them as one. Another illustration of cornerstone is, is that stone on the top there that holds that arch in place without which it collapses. <coughs> Notice that it has order and symmetry. It is something of beauty, especially when you see some of these uh, works of architecture. Amazing. But this is more amazing than that. It's just like the rest of the universe which God made. Those that he made especially in his image to be the vicegerents of it, to be the managers and thus rulers under him. And that would be us. And notice, for example, from Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, how without order, and order comes from God, there's chaos. As it says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. All things were created in a span of six days, unlike what has been purported recently in the Reformed Church that, that there is no such thing as a six-day creation or that we should entertain other views other than a literal six-day creation. No. God did this all in the span of six days. And he tells us to worship on the last day, the Sabbath day. And that has been changed to now the first day of the week upon the resurrection of our Lord upon the new creation that was initiated by Jesus Christ when he was risen from the dead. But notice in verse 2, and the earth was without form. Oh, yes, there was a planet, there was a structure, and there was water. There, was an o there were oceans, only there were one. And darkness was upon the face of the deep. Can you imagine being in a dinghy or, a, or even a, a yacht or even... Um, aircraft carrier in the middle of a vast ocean without any port in which to dock. That was the world. And then it says, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And of course, the rest of creation came into being one by one, day by day, until it was completed in the sixth day. And so it is with God's church. In 1 Corinthians 14, 31, 1 Corinthians 14, 31. For ye may all prophesy one by one, that all may learn, and all may be comforted. Notice that. There's order. There's symmetry. So that there may be this blessing of the body being built up. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. That means we have to be under the control of the Holy Spirit. 
that we might, that we have the fruit of self-control so that we might not be a bull in the china shop in the church, beginning with those that would lead it and shepherd the flock. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Organizations have officers, as we've talked about already, as we read earlier. And so the church has its officers. Remember, it's God's organized organism. It is living. It has life, but it also has structure and order. And that is necessary. While in worldly organizations, a limited number of persons may hold office in the church, every single member is an officer. Isn't that amazing? We all hold stock, as it were. We all are not just invited as visitors and observers to the board meetings. We are expected to be there. As it says in Acts 5, 14, And believers were the more added to the Lord, multitudes, both of men and women. For 1 Timothy 4, Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation or life, in charity and spirit and faith and purity. But that's not all. All believers are elected by God to serve in three offices, not just one, but three. In the general office of believer, there are three specific branches, it's like the branches of government, of our government, our democratic republican government. And those are the offices of prophet, priest, and like that of Christ. And this is another Heidelberg catechism question that precedes the one that I read earlier, 32, 31. Why is he called Christ that is anointed? Because he is ordained of God the Father and anointed with the Holy Ghost to be our chief prophet and teacher. Jesus is, is that, his church, who has fully revealed to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption. And our only high priest, there's the other one, who by the one sacrifice of his body has redeemed us and ever liveth to make intercession for us with the Father. And our eternal King, who governs us by his word and spirit and defends and preserves us in the redemption obtained for us. You see, the Lord Jesus is a prophet to teach us, a priest to mediate for us to the Father and a king to rule over us. But guess what else? So are we. Prophets, priests, kings, ourselves under Christ. Prophet to teach others and one another the word of God. We have that task to speak the word to each other. Priest to mediate for others and for one another in prayer, especially. And kings to oversee and guide others and one another in the faith. In the garden, man was created in the image of God. Male and female, I might add that. Created he him. 
The image of God consists of three attributes of God that there are not only three, but three are what the scriptures focus upon, and for very good reason, as you will see. And what are they? Knowledge, holiness, and righteousness. The prophet needs knowledge to teach. The priest needs holiness by which to mediate with a holy and righteous God. The king needs righteousness by which to rule his kingdom. When Adam fell, he lost the true knowledge of God. He lost the pure holiness of God. He lost the perfect righteousness of God. He went from being the new man that God created him to be and became an old man. So old, he was dying. That is why Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. When you are born again, you become a new man, a new woman, a new child. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. That's not the creature from the Black Lagoon, by the way. The actual word is ketitso, which means creation. Same difference. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. When you were in Christ Jesus, you say first and foremost that you are counted with his perfect righteousness. And your sins are washed away by his precious blood. You're clean, you're new, you're whole, you're complete. And your sins will never be held against you ever. David says, as far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. And more importantly, from him. Hezekiah said in Isaiah 30, Behold, for peace I had great bitterness, but thou hast a love to my soul delivered it from the pit of corruption. For thou hast cast all my sins behind thy back. I can picture someone tossing this bundle into the ocean and then it's sinking to the bottom. Those are my sins. Those are your sins if you're in Christ. John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. You know why? You know why there's only one reason why? Why a holy God will forgive us our sins when we ask him. It is because of Jesus. For the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, continues to cleanse us from all sin. The effects of Calvary are ongoing. And they will be until eternity because we need him. We cannot live without him. Without him we can do nothing. 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 We confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's all lawlessness. We are a lawless bunch, let me tell you. And it's not the people out there that are rioting. It's not the people that are going ape in power, thinking that they can do whatever they want to do and get away with it. Oh, no. There's someone that stand, that sits upon a throne that is over it all. And one day he will subsume all Kingdoms. He will subsume all thrones. He will subsume all white houses. Or Malakanyang, if you're a Filipino. 
But remember this, you're still a sinner. And me. But I call a work in progress sinner. Which is hopeful. But let me remind you and let the scriptures remind us. A sinner nevertheless. A sinner no less. No one is better than anyone else. No one is more sinful than anyone else. The Lord's illustration of the woman caught in the very act of adultery is an illustration of this very point. She was probably uh, 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 uncomfortably and indecently clad. And so our Lord, you can see him there in the ground doodling like he's a little kid just so that he won't look up and see her, perhaps, perhaps. That's just my, my, my conjecture. And he begins to say to each one of those religious leaders who are there to catch him, to trick him, to deceive him, to catch him in some doctrinal error or sin. Whoever of you has never sinned, let him cast the first stone. One by one, they all walked out the door. And then Perhaps by that point, the woman had time to cover herself, and he looks up to her and says, Where are your accusers? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. You see how the Lord works. No sin is worse than any other sin. There's not a sin that you can say. Is not forgivable by Jesus except for the unforgivable sin. John said this about that one. He says, If any man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask. And he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. Meaning God will give life to them. There's hope. There's a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. Now, we don't know what that sin is. We have an idea of what that sin probably was. It's called blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. When you get so bad that you actually curse the Holy Spirit and blaspheme the name of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is the closest one to all of us. The Holy Spirit is the one who dwells us people and when you begin to say that that one that's in you that is enabling you to even make baby steps in the kingdom of God that that that, that is not the Holy Spirit or that that is the devil then you've crossed that line but that is the only exception and every other sin apart from that one condemning sin that is not to be even prayed for is forgivable you have hope no matter how bad your sins are That's why we need to keep on praying. And that's why we need to keep on confessing. We need to keep on going to the throne of grace on our knees and asking help, grace, and mercy to help in time of need. And that time is not tomorrow. That time is right now. Our need is so overwhelmingly great. think about it, we can go at any time. But oh, to go to God in his arms, in the arms of Jesus, and to come with head bowed down at his judgment seat. Oh, that that would be our prayer. 
the well-done and good and faithful servant enter thou into the joy of the Lord prayer. You know, we start out, start out as babes in Christ. Those are words of Scripture, right? Like it says in, in, in Peter, 1 Peter 2, 2. As newborn babes, desiring the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. You know that baby in milk? I tell you, if you have a baby, you know why I like seeing babies? is because they, they make me feel young again. <laughs> They're hungry. And especially when I don't have much of an appetite anymore, just tell my family or ask my family that. Oh, I, it makes me want to eat again. But that means that we have a lot of learning yet to do, a lot of growing up in the kingdom of God. But remember, you're not alone. Look at Matthew 11, 28, and 29. Matthew 11. 28 and 29. What does our Lord Jesus tell us to do? Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest unto your souls. Seems like an oxymoron for him to say, come to me and find rest and then put my yoke on you. Huh? You mean like that heavy yoke that they put upon the oxen to help plow a straight line or furrow in the field? That's work. (coughs) That's burden. No. What he means is that we need to remember that we have a goal. And the goal is to learn all that we can about Jesus. And learning his work, discipleship, is, it can be grueling. So that we might grow up in our faith. So that we might become stronger Christians. So that we might be able to put on the whole armor of God, because that's heavy armor, let me tell you. It's going to take a lot of unlearning, old thinking, inordinate affections, self-will, replacing them with new thoughts, New feelings and new actions. Because after all, it's a straight and narrow path. And you know how that is, straight and narrow. It's like, whoa, don't have much latitude here, you know? No place to uh, go off to the side, like a rabbit trail. We call that in seven a rabbit trail. When you get off into tangents from the main course, from the exegetical uh, study that is before us, like the church in Ephesians chapter 4. It's like walking a high wire. Ever seen that? Like when someone tried it, or those that did that across Niagara Falls, I don't know what possessed them. They're there for a honeymoon. Enjoy yourselves. Why cross that wire or watch somebody cross that wire? Uh, (laughs) But you know, that's how it is to reach perfection. It's like that like that. You can't. You won't. You'll never do it. You'll never reach perfection. That's part of the frustration sometimes that we encounter along the way. Sometimes we want to beat ourselves up because we, we, we blotch it again and again. Look at Paul and how he just sort of beats himself up in Romans 7, 22 through 24. Romans 7. 
23 through 24. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. You know, he's a Christian. Paul is not speaking of himself as an unbeliever here, as some would conjecture. He is a believer in Christ. For he says, I delight in the law of God after the inward man. Now, that's true. If you're not a Christian, you could also delight in the law of God. But no, when you put it all together, he is speaking as a redeemed sinner. He's speaking as a child of God who has the new man, Christ in him, the hope of glory. But he's still with that remnant in him, that old man. And we'll be talking more about that later in the rest of Ephesians 4. But I see another law in my members, that is in my body, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. So it's affecting his members, which are basically his mind, emotions, and will. But notice how... Desperate the situation seems to be getting. Oh, wretched man, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? It's like we're in a, a, a walking, living corpse that's, well, it's dead, but it's, it's moving. That's how it feels. That's how he felt. And he wants deliverance from this. He can't take it anymore. And then he says, I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then with the mind... I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Meaning these principles are at work in me. There's the principle of, of God. There's the principle of the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the law of God. And then on the other hand, there's the principle of the flesh, the carnal, sinful man that still lives within and so there's a battlefield. God has erected a battlefield in our souls. Some people think, oh, I don't know if this was really what I should have done. But didn't Christ tell you to count the cost? Didn't he tell you what you were in for? That it was not going to be an easy road? That you'd have to give up certain things that you, that you loved before? That you were going to have to, when you put your hand to the plow, look forward and not look back? Because the one who does is not fit for the kingdom of God. Did you know that? Don't you remember that? Did you forget that? You see, the, the Bible is not leaving you any quarter, nor me. But for some reason, you keep going on. And the only reason I can come up with is one. And you'll find it in Philippians 3, 12. Philippians 3, Verse 12. Not as though I had already attained, either already perfect. It's not that I'm there yet. But I follow after, if that I may apprehend that, for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. There's the reason. Jesus. There's why I keep striving. Christ. Jesus has me. He's apprehended me. I can't escape him, nor do I want to. I'm happy. I'm happy being in this uh, situation. I couldn't pronounce the word, so I'll just say that. 
I'm happy being in this quandary of struggling between the flesh and the spirit, of struggling between Christ in me and the old man. And so he goes on, so this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind <coughs> and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. I go ahead. I don't go back. I go forward. Maybe it's two steps forward and one step back or three forward and two back. But I'm going forward. Maybe it's baby steps, but I know it's going to get better. Maybe it's uphill, but I know that it's going to level off and finally it will be downhill in heaven. I'm not there yet. Not even close. But will it be worth it? Because you and I will be more like Jesus. And that's worth it. That's worth it. Remember the earlier three attributes I spoke of? Of the image of God. Knowledge, holiness, and righteousness. You and I will begin to take that back. You and I will be able to have that restored. Sin didn't totally obliterate God's image in us, but it did a significant number to blur, blur it so that it was almost indistinguishable. We, we seem like we're no different than anyone else in the world. And even now, we are like fools for Christ's sake. But by the word and spirit of Christ, we begin to take it back. You see the three attributes in Colossians 3.10 and Ephesians 4.24. Let's look those up. Colossians 3.10 first. We have them there spread out in those two verses. Colossians 3.10. And have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Notice, renewed in knowledge. The new man is renewed in knowledge. That knowledge that we had in the garden, that Adam had, that we had in Adam, in the garden. And it's after the image of him that created him, or us, and us. And then Ephesians 4, 24. And that you put on the new man which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. <coughs> there are the other two. Notice the three. You see it, although the order is not like I had it. Knowledge, holiness, and righteousness. But that gets us back to my original point. Why we need these three. And why do we need these three? To be the prophet priest and king that God has intended us to be. Remember? Prophet with knowledge to teach, priest with holiness to mediate and king with righteousness to rule, to oversee and to under shepherd the body of Christ. Look at Numbers 12, 11, 
25, we see them in other words. Uh, that is, these three offices of prophet, priest, and king. First, Numbers 11, 29. This was the words of, of Moses saying to Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of Moses, one of his young men, when he wanted only that Moses prophesy, he said, Envious thou for my sake? Would God that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them, he wasn't jealous or envious or covetous over the gifts of the Holy Spirit. He wanted all of God's people to share alike of the bounty of God in the inner man. And then one more, Revelation 1, 5, and 6. Revelation 1. Five and six. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now you tell me if God didn't have that plan all along. You tell me if God doesn't want you and I to be prophets and priests and kings unto God, the Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> End of discussion, right? Would God that all of the Lord's people be prophets, priests, and kings? Amen? Let me read now again the Heidelberg Catechism, question 32. You all don't have that anymore on the newer Blue Trinity hymnals. It, it's the Westminster you have there. But at one time, the old ones, which we shipped off to the Philippines, by the way, they have it. <laughs> and they're using it, I'm sure, with the Heidelberg in the back. It reads, But why art thou called Christian? Remember the name that was given? for the first time in Antioch, the missionary church of the world. Because by faith I am a member of Christ, there's the office of believer, and thus a partaker of his anointing, in order that I also may confess his name, prophet, and may present myself a living sacrifice of thankfulness to him, priests. And lastly, and that with a free conscience I may fight against sin and the devil in this life, and hereafter in eternity may reign with him over all creatures. King. Let us pray. Father, help us. Help us because we have a ominous and foreboding and impossible task before us. And that is not only to survive this world and to make it to heaven, but to do so gloriously 
humbly but yet honorably with praise unto our God for the great grace that he has given to us to make us prophets, priests, and kings in our own right unto you. And that by our being prophets and priests and kings to one another and to those that are yet to become part of the household of faith. To this end, we dedicate our day to you, our prayer to you now as a commitment, at least spoken through myself as the pastor, that as for me and my church, we will serve the Lord. In Jesus' name.